We're starting a four-week sermon series. Stacy and I are today on forgiveness. Uh, of course, that's a really pitifully small amount of time to deal with it, but we're going to look at various aspects of what it means to live as a forgiven people, what it means that God forgives us, the command to forgive one another. We're going to begin with, in the, our gospel reading is going to be uh, in Luke 19. As we come to this, let's pray. Gracious God, open anew our hearts, our minds, our hands, that we would receive your word and your truth in ways that make a difference in our lives, and having been touched by you, would also make a difference in the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it, and a man was there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and say, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. The power that was in Jesus, and before which all other powers on earth and in heaven give way, the power that holds all things in existence from the sparrow's eye to the farthest star is above all else a loving power. I heard those words in a sermon 30 or more years ago, and it, something opened in me at the hearing of that about the possibility for God's love in my life that I had not touched heretofore in my life. It was from a sermon by Frederick Beekner. He preached it decades ago. Again, it began, the power that is in Jesus and before which all other powers on earth and in heaven give way the power that holds all things in existence from the sparrow's eye to the farthest star is above all else a loving power. And then he went on to say, that means we are loved even in our lostness. That means we are precious, every one of us. Every city is precious. The world is precious. Someday the precious time will be up for each of us, but the kingdom of God is at hand. Nothing is different and everything is different. It reaches out to each of our precious hands while there's still time. I certainly don't expect that necessarily to break something open in you today like it did to the 20-something-year-old me. But I'm pretty sure the spirit of these words broke something open in Zacchaeus on that day where he found himself up a tree. One night in 1963, Bob Rosenthal snuck into the lab where he worked 
as a research psychologist, and he hung signs on all the lab rat cages. Some signs labeled particular rats as incredibly smart, and that was the sign. And signs attached to other cages were that the rats inside were incredibly dumb. Of course, neither of this was true. These were all just rats, you know, run-of-the-mill basic rats. The next morning, Bob brought in a group of fresh researchers and assigned an individual rat to each of them. Over the next few weeks, their job was to run their assigned rat through a maze and then record the results. And they were told that some of their rats were exceptional and some of their rats were lagging way behind. So they ran the rats that they'd told that were smart and they told the rats they'd been told were dumb through mazes. The results weren't even close. The smart rats did twice as well as the dumb rats. Even though the smart rats were not smart and the dumb rats were not dumb, the findings, he couldn't find a way to publish them. No one believed that this could be the case. What became clear was the expectations that the researchers had translated into a whole set of minor behavior changes. Their expectation of their rat changed the way they touched the rats and in turn, the way the rats behaved. So when the experimenters thought that their rats were really smart, they acted more warmly toward their rats. They touched them more carefully. And this subtle change made a change in the rats' behavior. Scripture does not give us a backstory on Zacchaeus' life before this day. We have no way of knowing how and why in the middle of his life he climbed a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. We know nothing about his family of origin. We don't know how he was spoken to or what labels were applied to him as he was growing up. We just know on this day he was literally up a tree and by himself. The, that location in the tree provided a good view. It was kind of a luxury skybox, if you will. But it was also removed. It was removed from the crowd. It was removed from interaction. It was removed into perceived safety. It was removed into isolation. We know Zacchaeus was reviled. He was a tax collector. We figure that he probably had few, if any, friends. But we don't know exactly what influences led him to that tree on that day. Do any of us, though, set out on life's path Determine that one day we will discover that we're far away from God, far away from others, in a broken life, with broken relationships. No, it's a kind of thing that happens one step at a time in all our lives. One unkind word spoken, one slammed door, one hoarded paycheck, one moment of gossip, one drink too many, one time we were unwilling to say, I'm sorry. Zacchaeus' path up to that day in that tree led him to thrive in a corrupt system in which he got to extort money and cook the books and make all sorts of side deals that lined his pockets. As Jericho's tax collector, Zacchaeus was on the top of the power structure, and the higher he climbed, the more isolated he was. And nobody felt bad for Zacchaeus. Let him just stay up in the tree alone, I'm sure was the crowd's consensus. And here comes Jesus. 
Even from everything this text has told us and everything we know about Jesus, it is almost impossible that if we were just leading, reading line by line without knowing this story, that we could have predicted the next line. Their words of Jesus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. The world in which we live and move and have our being would predict very different lines, like Zacchaeus, I've got auditors with me and they've got a subpoena. Zacchaeus, I'll save you, but first, a slideshow to review of your last 20 years. This could take some time. Zacchaeus, if you can get five people to be a character witness, then I'll talk. Or perhaps most notably, Zacchaeus, I'm scheduled to be back through Jericho in six months. Clean up your act, and maybe we'll talk. We get none of that in Luke's gospel. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Hurry, come down. Come down from your isolated life. Come down from your pain and your misery. Come down from your addictions and your fear. Come down where your feet are on the ground again because God has moved into your neighborhood and wants to be at your house tonight. Today, right now, no explanation, no backstory, no relitigation of all Zacchaeus' fault. Jesus does not call out Zacchaeus' deceit and greed. Jesus does not list the names of the lives Zacchaeus has ruined. Zac Jesus does not point it to the kids in the street who've gone hungry because of Zacchaeus' corruption. He does not guilt Zacchaeus, even though you know that's what everybody in the crowd wanted to do. Jesus doesn't even ask Zacchaeus if he's interested in hosting him. He just says, I'm coming to you. It's a complete reversal of anything we would expect to how we live our lives. A few summers ago, eight friends gathered around a backyard patio dining table in Washington, D.C. to celebrate family and friendship. The table was set with incredible food, French wine. It was one of those nights that lingered in a way you just wanted to keep going on and on. It was getting kind of late when Michael, one of the hosts, that night, looks up and sees, as if in slow motion, the long barrel of a handgun coming between him and his wife. The gun belonged to a man who'd walked into the backyard, medium in height, wearing designer sweats, who raises the gun first to Michael's friend Christina and then pointed straight toward Michael's wife, saying, give me your money. He keeps repeating that phrase over and over again, harsh, angry, give me your money. Fear and terror had just invaded the backyard. But there's a problem, because like many people today, no one there actually carries cash anymore. There was no money to give. No one had any money. So in their desperation, they start talking, grasping at some way to dissuade this man. They try guilt. What would your mother think of you being here right now, one person asked. I don't have a mother, he said with expletives. You don't want to do something you'll regret, they said. And look, there's a teenager here, and we're good people. Give me your money. Michael remembers thinking this was going to end very badly. But then Christina pipes up. You know, she said tentatively, we're all celebrating why don't you have a glass of wine? 
all of a sudden, the look on the man's face changes. He takes a sip of wine and says, huh, that, that's, that's really good wine. He then reaches for the cheese, and as he does so, he tucks the gun into his pocket. He drinks his glass of wine and refills the glass. He eats some cheese, but everyone is just standing there frozen. And then the intruder says something no one could have predicted. I think I've come to the wrong address. At which point they all respond, oh, that can happen. We totally understand. <laughs> Happens all the time. But he's still there. And he still has the gun. And again, the intruder says something no one could predict. He said, could I get a hug? So Michael's wife, who minutes earlier had the gun pointed at her, gives him kind of an awkward hug. He looks around and says, well, can I have a group hug? At that point, everybody in the backyard forms this awkward circle around him and hugs this man. When the hug's finished, he says, I'm sorry. And he walks out the front gate with a glass of wine in his hand. After they all started breathing again and people were finally leaving, Michael found that wine glass not thrown to the pavement and smashed, not thrown into the bushes, but carefully placed by their front gate. Now this is a good story. But we hear it and we think, it's a great story, but, but that probably wouldn't happen to you or me, but this doesn't condone his behavior. That's the problem with Zacchaeus' story. Does it condone Zacchaeus' behavior? But this guy needs serious help. But who wants to hug strangers like that? But where's the justice in this? From our vantage point of living our lives, we believe it is highly dangerous to ever talk about forgiveness apart from accountability and justice and confession and repentance and all that goes with it. Zacchaeus had a life that was not working. Maybe he was up in the tree praying for a miracle. Maybe he was just curious and felt safe up that tree, safe from the crowd below that hated him, safe that Jesus wouldn't look at him and say anything to him. But Zacchaeus never expected Jesus to say, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. Don't give me excuses, Zacchaeus. Don't try to explain to me why you got here or what happened. Don't expect me to present you with a bill you have to pay first. Just receive this relationship first of all. Just receive forgiveness first of all. This is God's way with us. God does this all the time, never stops, continues to do it, is not thwarted by anything, takes initiative in your life and in my life and in our life together again and again and again and again. When we get tired of hearing it, God keeps saying it. It's the entire drama of the Bible right here. God doesn't stop. Now the world every day tries to talk us out of this truth. We are told that grace is limited and everything is conditional. But God's initiative in our lives, it is utterly inexhaustible. Father Greg Boyle, who runs Hoboy Industries in Los Angeles, I've talked about him before, got to know a 15-year-old boy named Rigo. 
at a county detention facility where Rigo had spent most of his young life. In preparing Rigo for First Communion, Boyle asked him about his background, his family, his faith. Tell me about your dad, he says. Oh, Rigo says, he's an addict. Never really been in my life, barely ever lived with us, and when he did, he hit a lot. He's in prison now, Rigo said. But as he recalled this, it was as if Rigo went back to a very painful place, and just talking about it, he began to sob and rock back and forth. Boyle simply sat with him until the tears passed, and then he said, what about your mom? Rigo pointed some distance over there to a tiny woman who was standing by the gym entrance. That's her over there, he said, his tone relaxing. There is no one like her. I've been locked up for more than a year and a half. She works six days a week, Rigo said, but she comes to see me every Sunday. You know how many buses she takes every Sunday to see my sorry self? And then just like that, he began sobbing and rocking again at the talking about this. Gasping through his tears, he finally said, seven. She takes seven buses. Just imagine. Whenever we talk about forgiveness, we must begin. We must begin by imagining the expansive heart of God, one who will take seven buses to arrive at our doorstep every time, no matter what. Tomorrow, you're going to begin your day. Your alarm will go off or your feet will hit the floor. And most likely, all of us will be trying to climb some tree. It'll be a tree of achievement or a tree of hiding or a tree of isolation, of getting a leg up, a tree of attention or prominence or affirmation or fake security. But the day after Zacchaeus had dinner with Jesus, when he got up in the morning, that was the first day of his whole life, he didn't have to go climb a tree. Everything had changed through nothing he did, but through everything he was, beloved, so loved by God. And look what happened. His life changes because of that love. He gives away everything he had valued most highly 24 hours before when he climbed up that tree, and he did it all out of joy. Something that was never present in Zacchaeus' life was now overwhelming in his life. It's akin to those words that opened God's love to me long ago. The power that is in Jesus and before which all other powers on earth and in heaven give way. The power that holds all things in existence from the sparrow's eye to the farthest star is above all a loving power. To the extent to which any of us here today or all of us together are stuck up in a tree for any reason, no matter how we got there, no matter how long we've been there, God's loving power will not budge from the base of that tree until we move, not now, not ever. God is at the base of that tree. God will take seven buses every day to reach you. God is willing to even orchestrate an awkward group hug if that'll work for you. The love of God changes everything in your life and in my life. And it is the only thing in all creation that makes forgiveness possible.